Before we look at what may be the key piece of the anatomy in this truly revolutionary transition, it is important to point out that the reduction in the Miocene forests did not make some apes become bipedal, it simply provided a stage on which that could happen. Similarly, Though walking upright eventually made a whole array of human traits possible, such as making tools, it did not make us human. It simply enabled our lineage to become human. The evolution of a multitasking pelvis. Bringing forth children, quote-unquote, in sorrow, is the fate to which the biblical God doomed Eve and her female progeny, but it goes back a long way, probably as far back as Lucy's time three million years ago, and perhaps even earlier. Rather than a punishment for transgressing a dietary command from on high, this fate is in large part a result of standing up and walking on two legs. Furthermore, this evolutionary step appears to have decreed that at some point along the way, midwifery would become the world's oldest, which is to say first, profession. One can even, however speculatively, trace a fairly straightforward connection between bipedalism and the special sociability, or what some scientists call affiliativeness, among women, and from there dimly perceive and speculate about the evolutionary logic behind the origin of human speech. Before we head off into these distant and rarefied realms, however, it is time to look at the nature of the human pelvis, in particular that of women. Like most parts of the anatomy, the human pelvis has many purposes. It, to accomplish them, it is a bundle of compromises. It rests upon the legs, providing sockets for bulbous ends of the femurs, which is to say our hips, which facilitate our ability to walk upright. The pelvis also provides a bony basin in which our viscera sit, safe from gravity's inexorable pull, in four-legged animals, it is the abdomen that holds the viscera up. Of course, our curved backbone rests, however, uneasily upon the pelvis. In women, the pelvis also provides space, the birth canal, for babies to move from the uterus out into the world at large. One of the compromises evolution has had to achieve is between making this birth canal sufficient to accommodate the passage of a human baby and at the same time permitting the mother to walk and run upright. For we humans are supremely big-headed species in comparison with our bodies and also comparatively broad-shouldered. When a human baby is born, its head has a longer way to go than that of a chimpanzee, 
to become fully developed. In fact, a human baby's first three months after birth can be thought of as a fourth trimester. At birth, the human baby is far more immature and helpless than a chimp baby. And after birth, its head has a far greater amount of growth in store. But even so, a human baby's head at birth is a lot larger in proportion to its body than a chimp baby's head is. Both the large prenatal head and the long period of helplessness after birth go a long way to explain why we are so advanced in many mental processes. But these two features also represent something of a spanner in the birthworks. For a person to walk or run easily on two legs, the two legs have to be relatively close together, which means the pelvis and therefore the birth canal need to be relatively narrow. If a human baby's head were to grow much larger before birth, the mother's pelvis would have to be so wide that she could only waddle, something in the manner of a crocodile or a lizard. In effect, for a bipedal creature with the legs placed far apart on wide hips, each step would require her to laboriously and awkwardly heave her trunk around her planted foot and then forward. So the narrow human birth canal is a necessary compromise and a parlous one at that. In the great apes, the birth canal is large compared with the infant's head. As a result, birth in gorillas, for example, is simple, taking about 20 minutes and causing relatively little strain on either party. Gorillas can get away with this because, while they have a largely terrestrial, <coughs> they locomote mostly on four limbs. On the other hand, the human infant's skull is almost exactly the same size as the opening of the birth canal. And unlike the case of the apes, the human birth canal has evolved into a tortuous, twisted path. In figure 3-1, schematic showing the orientation of a baby's head during the birthing process from an obstetrician's view. Note that in chimpanzees, the head maintains the same position throughout, while in Australopithecus or Australopithecines, the head rotates only minimally. In modern humans and in most other members of the genus Homo, the head rotates to the point that the mother would be unable to assist the baby in the event of complications. Hence, some of the benefits of midwifery. Seen from above, a baby's head is oval and the long dimension goes from the forehead to the back of the head. The entrance to the mother's birth canal is also oval and as noted, a very tight fit with the baby's head. The entrance is widest from side to side relative to the mother's body so a baby starts out head first, facing one side or the other of the mother's body. But the next segments 
of the birth canal change orientation. The long dimension of the birth canal's oval shape shifts to become front to back, and then side to side again at the exit. The baby, therefore, has to twist along with the changing shape of the birth canal so that its head and then its shoulders are lined up with the long dimension of the canal's oval shape. This means, among other things, that the baby will typically have performed a 180 in the course of being born. Instead of emerging facing in the same direction as the mother's body, that is, the front, the baby typically emerges facing the mother's rear. Women are the only primates in whom the baby emerges facing the rear. When a monkey baby or an ape baby begins to emerge, the mother who will be squatting or on all fours in a tree or somewhere else by herself can reach backward and guide the baby out, deal with the umbilicus and placenta, and pull the baby toward her breast. But if a human mother were to reach down where her baby's head emerges and try to gently pull it out, the pressure she would exert no matter how gentle would tend to pull against the natural curve of the baby's spinal cord, risking neurological damage or even death. This tortuous trail from uterus to world is unique to humans and represents several kinds of compromises. It allows the fetus to have the maximum possible size head and still escape through a necessarily narrow birth canal in a pelvis that lets the mother walk and run on two legs with great efficiency. On the other hand, it causes a considerable amount of pain and stress, and it also risks a good deal of mortality for both mother and child. For example, in a breech birth, which happens about 3-4% to of the time, the baby's feet or knees make a poor spreader of the canal. If they get through at all, the baby's head may then get jammed long enough to cause death by asphyxiation, risking the life of the mother as well. Even when this system works as designed, it puts a huge strain on both parties. The baby's head is necessarily squeezed as it turns and passes through the canal, the several plates of its still unformed skull being shoved away from the top of the head. One result is the well-known soft spot on top of a newborn baby's head. Another result is considerable shock to the baby as it is about to enter the world. For the mother, of course, the huge effort of contractions that can last for long periods and the actual birth are often accompanied by pain unknowable by those who haven't been through it. It is worth noting that were the human baby's head as fully formed at birth as that of a chimpanzee baby, that is, with its plates firmly joined, there would be less give in the skull and it would rarely make it through. To reach the current arrangement can only have occurred through countless millions of individual hominid tragedies as well as successes. 
Before we look at how this painful and exacting series of compromises came about, and when an important side effect of the process on the nature of humanity, and especially human females, needs to be explored. Wendell R. Travathian of the University of New Mexico's Anthropology Department is also a professional midwife, as well as a scholarly specialist on the human birth process. A study she co-authored with a fossil specialist, Karen Rosenberg, of the University of Maryland, pointed out that the tendency for human babies to be born facing the mother's back has made human mothers the only primates, indeed the only animals, that seek and get assistance in the birth process. It is possible, of course, for a woman to have her baby by herself, and it is even considered a cultural ideal in certain cultures, such as the Kung of the Kalahari Desert in southern Africa. Even among the Kung, however, it is an ideal that is apparently quite rarely achieved, particularly among first-time mothers, and most ethnographic assertions about solo birthing have proved not to be the case. Certainly, solo birthing is by no means the norm among peasant societies as fictionalized in such novels as The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. Assisted birth, then, is a nearly universal practice among humans, and Trevathian has written that the advantages of simple forms of assistance have reduced maternal and infant mortality throughout history. Unquote. 